Hey, I'm singing very good tonight. You know the song, friends? I'll tell you. There's nothing like a microphone in front of a guy's trap to make him tap the fathead in him all the way. America, bring it up there, large please. Oh, uh, by way of a disclaimer, the following program certainly does not at any point represent the viewpoint of the station upon which it is being broadcast. We want that to be understood. It does not represent the viewpoint of the speaker. And it, uh, in fact, does not represent any known viewpoint. Uh, we just want that perfectly clear before we begin tonight. And uh, also, of course, uh, we must warn you that uh, tonight's program is liable to be in exceedingly bad taste. It's just, just a feel it that way. It's just coming on. Exceedingly bad taste. So don't you sit down and write any angry, indignant letters about how you were listening and all of a sudden this rotten thing was said. You've been warned. Okay, bring it up there. <laughs> The trouble is that the following program is for adults, so hence there will be some rotten stuff said. Now, look, you, you can be 107 years old and not an adult friend. In fact, that's quite probably the case. Kambala. <laughs> oh, I just feel... Hey, hey, you know what I feel like doing right now? Watch it, watch it. I feel like... Come on, come on, come on. I'm, I'm going to... Before we do anything else... No, I better not. Oh, that's a lovely tune. Hey, you want to hear a great little story? A heartwarming story that will warm the cockles of your old grizzled heart. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Oh, boy, you sure can see this show ain't got no Jackie Gleason budget, isn't it? Incidentally, uh, you want to hear that great little story? Listen to this. It really is a funny little story. Madrid, Spain. Caesar, the starling, was among the passengers who landed here in Madrid, Spain, on a Scandinavian jet. An anonymous lady had found him almost frozen in Norway's snow. And it turned him over to an airline official with this note around his neck. Please send me to some place where it's warm. I am freezing. I have no money. And I promise not to hijack the plane. Love, Caesar. At the Madrid airport, Caesar was given a royal banquet. Everybody cheered. He was then released into the trees, harboring hundreds of other starlings. <laughs> Can't you see these other starlings? Who's this Swedish Frank that just showed up? You know, Spanish starlings are very snooty. Isn't that a great little story? I can, he wakes up. Oh, wow. You know, he wakes up in heaven. You want to hear another groovy little story? Oh, uh... I'm, am I alone in this? No, I can't be alone in this. I got something I want to read to you. Let me find it here. I will read it to you. Okay. All right. Uh, I think we ought to have a little music behind that. Would you please uh, sneak that little... Uh, this is frog music. Bring it in. Oh, that old frog. He hops. 
Up there and down. He goes nowhere, but he... All right, bring it up, big. Yes, friends, the frog. Be kind and tender to the frog. Do not call him names as a slimy skin or pollywog or likewise ugly james or gape-a-grin or toad gone wrong or billy bandy knees the frog is justly sensitive to epithets like these no animal will more repay a treatment kind and fair at least so lonely people say so friends keep a frog and uh, by the way they are extremely rare that's enough of that hold it there now, that is a little poem to the frog. Isn't that kind of cute? Be kind and tender to the frog. Do not call him names. Now, I happen to be a fantastic frog fan. I dig frogs. I really do. I'm sorry. I, I think a frog is a real groovy animal. And I don't think he gets enough uh, promotion. You know, people walk around, they're always yapping about cats. You, you, you listen to Peggy Fisher every five minutes. a cat. kitty. You know, cats all the time, all the time. Cats, cats. And uh, you hear a lot about dogs. You know, they have a big show over here with the dogs and all the chance. Well, there's a lot of other animals, folks. A lot of them, boy. And a lot of them are a lot better than the animals that are getting all the big promo stuff. And I submit to you that the frog is a great animal, and he rarely gets any kind of, uh, you know, any kind of promotion. Although poets over the years have recognized the frog's uh, basic potentialities as a great animal. And tonight, I'm going to do a program about frogs. You mind? As a public service. What do you mean, it's a public service? I could just as easily do one about worms. I have to dig worms, too. Now, uh, you want to hear another... Uh, now, could you uh, actually call a toad a frog? Is a toad a frog that didn't make it? I mean, you know, <laughs> I'm just curious. I mean, because, <laughs> uh, you know, I've had some great experiences with frogs. I remember one time I'm in this biology class, and, uh, yeah, Miss Crystal Reeder was my teacher in the biology class, and I uh, had blue hair, and uh, we had this, uh, we had this, uh, thing where we had a cork board. You ever had that thing with the little pins and the cork board and they give you that, give you these little scalpels and, uh, yeah, you take these frogs that have been pickled and you dissect them. Well, one of my more uh, poignant romances had to do with the dissection of a frog on one quiet, beautiful spring afternoon with a chick named Pearl who uh, I fell madly in love with her as I'm dissecting this frog. See, the only way I could prove to her my basic masculinity and my basic greatness and fantasticness and cuteness because it was totally inarticulate at that time when I was around a chick and especially one who had alabaster skin and, <laughs> you know and had these fantastic eyes like two twin opals lit up with a glow of pure passion I mean this was a chick I want to tell you all the way and uh, by the luck of the draw it was one of the few times I've ever been lucky in my life by the luck of the draw when they passed out the biology laboratory assignments, I drew Pearl as my laboratory, you know, my laboratory friend. I was always going to say my laboratory mate, but that didn't work out that way, the way things worked out. And uh, No, she caught on to me quick. But I'll tell you one thing. 
this chick pretended to dig me. I learned later. It was terrible. I, I can see why playwrights write angry plays and all that, you know. Because this chick pretended to dig me because during the pursuance of this biology tool course, there was a lot of dirty work we had to do around those lab tables. I mean, like cut frogs open. I don't know whether, you know, I mean, I don't do this very often. And she pretended to dig me. She'd flap her old eyeballs at me and spin her eyeballs at me. And you look at me and say great stuff to me. Oh, you're so strong. And oh, you can do so many things. And oh, I don't know how you can do that. That's so wonderful. I wish I were more like you. And I would take that scalpel and cut the frog open, you know, and the, and the juice is pouring out all over the place, you know. You know, frogs got juice. And uh, I, I cut open cats and everything else. And it was later on when she came off with the B plus, and uh, you know she got a B plus in this class, and I came off with the C plus, and that you know I did all her work for her. That's what bugged me. I did her laboratory book, and I did the whole thing. We had this manual, you know, and I would fill out her manual even. I would uh, I would weigh the pancreas and the frog, you know, eighteen and a half milligrams, and I would write down eighteen and a half milligrams in her workbook. And she'd say, "Oh, isn't that nice? I don't know how you can read that funny little thing." meaning the scale, see. And uh, and then I would pull out the uh, the liver, see, and I'd say, here's the liver. And I would measure it. We had these little, these little uh, things with, me- you know, with the little prongs on it, what a caliper's like, and I would measure it. The liver is, uh, you know, <laughs> 13.7 uh, millimeters long, and uh, it's eight and a half millimeters thick, and I'd write it down in her, in her book, and she'd say, isn't that interesting? What is a millimeter? I'd say, well, that's the stuff a scientist know, you know. Uh, <laughs> you know, you know, she got a B plus. I got a C plus on the same crummy laboratory book. Well, friends, uh, Don Marquis said it one time. You want me to tell you what Don Marquis said about that? I'll read this here if I can find it. I'll tell you what Don Marquis said. Well, he was talking about a chicken. You know, you know, chickens aren't nobody cheers chickens. And uh, this poor old chicken was, uh, you know, talking about being a beautiful butterfly. The chicken says, nobody's... No, it was, a, it, was a, it was a cockroach. And a cockroach says, you know, boss, everybody steps on cockroaches all the time. And they get a cheer when they do it, you know. And if you ever stepped on a butterfly, people would say you're rotten. He says, well, a butterfly's a bug, boss. Don't you forget it. And uh, he says, I can only tell you one moral of this. Be beautiful. <laughs> That's all. I mean, everybody cries when a beautiful kid is hit on the head, but a little short, rotten kid with a runny nose, everybody cheers when they get him, give him a shot, you know? But that's the way it goes, you know? You six of one half a dozen the other. And nobody says great things about frogs. Why? Because they're ugly. Nobody likes them. You don't see any national frog show over here at the over here at the Madison Square Garden, do you? You bet you don't. That's right. Well, tonight, I'm going to say great things about frogs and toads. You want to hear what Don Marquis said? I am quoting a cockroach. You know, there's a little cockroach named uh, Archie. And uh, Archie was a cockroach. You see, he'd been a poet, and he got hit by a truck. And, uh, you know, tr- you know what transmigration of the soul is? Well, that means, you know, if you're liable to get hit up if, tomorrow morning, for example, if you get hit by lightning, you're liable in, in a split second find yourself a horse. You're a horse. One of the funniest books I ever read when I was a kid. Now, I don't know whether any of you ever heard of this book. Now, this influenced me forever. You know, while other kids were reading stuff like Lady of the Lake, 
Other guys were reading Julius Caesar, and they were growing up to become Norman Mailer. What am I doing? I'm reading Thorne Smith. That's right. I'm not kidding. My old man got hung on Thorne Smith, and I read everything Thorne Smith ever wrote. And it was a real sad story about... <laughs> I mean, it was a wild story about a guy who uh, was sitting there in the train one day, and all of a sudden, he turned into a horse. I mean, he really became a horse, but he had the same mind, you know, as a guy. And, <laughs> and it was very embarrassing, because, you know, horses don't wear pants. And uh, a lot of stuff happened to him. He's walking down the street, he meets this chick, and... <laughs> Did you hear about that? And I remember when he, he went to church, and there was a lot of yelling and hollering, and I don't remember the name of that uh, that book. Do, do any of you know it? Hey, Lee, can I bother you for a minute, hon? Hold it there a minute, baby. We're getting our literary representative here. will tell us, do you remember the name of that book? And don't say Turnabout. Thorn Smith, where the guy turned into a horse. And then, yeah, oh, it was a, one of the funniest novels ever read. And then he kept turning into different animals. And at the end, he turned into a goldfish. Do you remember that? And he was living in this house, you see. <laughs> but, but here's what happened, though. He's, he's walking around, see, and he's got a goldfish ball in his house. Now, he's, this is when he's a man, see. And he'd look at the goldfish once in a while, never think anything about it, you know. There's just goldfish in there. And by some fantastic uh, series of events, he suddenly finds himself in this goldfish ball. And again, you know, goldfish don't wear pants. There's a lot of embarrassing things about that. And uh, he's in this goldfish bowl, and they had a little, uh, you know how they put these little castles in the goldfish bowl? Well, all of a sudden, here he is, he's a goldfish, see. And this castle became an entirely different thing than, uh, than you know, before. It had been just a little thing he got at a dime store. But suddenly it was a real castle. <laughs> and he's down there, and he's a goldfish. And he finds that, uh, that goldfish, he never realized this up to this point that there were some chick goldfish in this bowl. He just thought there were goldfish. You know, he never realized that, that here, there, you know, there's male goldfish and there's, there's uh, female goldfish. And so he's, he's, he's now a male goldfish, see. And he looks around and here's this fantastically beautiful goldfish. Now, remember, he's got the mind of a person. And he never thought he would fall in love with a fish, which he did. And, they, you know, he, <laughs> he was very embarrassed. And then uh, after, you know, a couple of things happened, all of a sudden he turns back into a man again. And now he's walking around in the room there, and here is his goldfish bowl. Now get this. You've got to listen to this very carefully. I know Matt wouldn't understand this gag, so you have to listen to it. You know, Sammy Davis couldn't explain this one, so he wouldn't understand it. So <laughs> he's walking around. Yeah, he's walking around, and here's his goldfish bowl. See? Now remember, he had been a goldfish a couple of days before, see? And he looks in, and he sees this chick goldfish that he had had this affair with. You understand that now? He's now a man. And she is looking out at him accusingly. And there, swimming around in the bowl, is about 248 little tiny new goldfish. And he's presented <laughs> with this terrible... <laughs> well, now that's the kind of stuff I was reading at the age of eight, friend, when all the other kids were reading Sam the Young Shortstop, you know, stuff like uh, the outdoor chums at the lake. I was reading Thorne Smith. I'd love to know the name of that book again. That's a gas. I'm, I'm waiting for the day when Thorne Smith has a great revival. I ought to get some of his stuff and read, you know. I mean, he, his stuff was truly libidinous. Speaking of libidinous, this is WOR. Very libidinous station. This is WOR in New York, friends. Uh, by the way, we have a piece, a story, if you're, uh, you know, I always, little old ladies write and say, Mr. Shepard, how can you write for that awful magazine, Playboy? Well, 
Well, sorry, baby, your bag. Uh, but uh, I would like to point out I have a story in The Current, the February issue of Car and Driver. Run, do not walk to your nearest newsstand and pick it up. It's the first piece of pure pornography that has appeared in Car and Driver. That is admitted. I'm the Sheik of Araby. And now... Some think it could well be its coverage of the unrest on American college campuses. In the first of a five-part series beginning this week in TV Guide magazine, Neil Hickey examines the impressions college activists have of television and the impressions television relays of campus unrest. Must reading for concerned Americans. Covered on this week's TV Guide, the creative mind of Flip Wilson. TV Guide searched through the characters of Geraldine and the Reverend Leroy to find the wellspring of imagination that is Wilson's. In the same issue, a close look at a 22-year-old guy who's being paid $2 million to run around in shorts and throw a ball through a hoop. Good reading this week in TV Guide. TV Guide, New York's biggest-selling weekly magazine. America's biggest-selling weekly magazine. TV Guide, on sale everywhere. What do you do when the music stops? Where are you then? Where are you then? When you drop full blown on all the mountaintops? Where are you then, my friend? What do you see when your pupils contract? When you're out in the alley after your act. And you're not quite whole, and the straight world's intact. Then, my friend, you may think drugs are the answer to all the things you may think are wrong with the world. But with that answer, nothing changes except you. And if too many of you choose that answer, where are we then, my friend? Where are we then? The preceding was brought to you by the National Institute of Mental Health. Right in the ear. Okay, bring that, uh, sneak that in there. Sneak it in there. Now, I'm going to quote this little frog. Uh, actually, it's a, in this case, it's a, it's a cockroach, Archie, and he's talking about a toad. And it's a sad little story. Listen to this, friends. It's entitled, Warty Bliggins, the Toad. I met a toad the other day by the name of Warty Bliggins. He was sitting under a toadstool, feeling contented. He explained that when the cosmos was created, 
that toadstool was especially planned for his personal shelter from sun and rain. Thought out and prepared for him. Do not tell me, said Wardy Bliggins, that there is not a purpose in the universe. The thought is blasphemy. A little more conversation revealed that Wardy Bliggins considers himself to be the center of the said universe. The earth exists to grow toadstools for him to sit under, the sun to give him light by day, and the moon and wheeling constellations to make beautiful tonight for guess what? The sake of Wardy Bliggins. To what act of yours do you impute this interest on the part of the creator of the universe, I ask him? Why is it that you are so greatly favored? Ha-ha! Ask, rather, said Wardy Bliggins, what the universe has done to deserve me. If I were a human being, I would not laugh too complacently, friend, at poor Wardy Bliggins, for similar absurdities have only too often lodged in the wrinkles of the human cerebrum. Signed, Archie. I wonder how many kid college students out there believe that the universe revolves around them. Huh? Just thought I'd throw it out. Oh, Holden Caulfield, we salute you. All right, now reset that. Okay, that was uh, Warney Bliggins the Toad. Did you like that? That's not all. Do you want to hear another one? Wait a minute. I got a lot of poetry about frogs and toads, man. All right, get this prepared in there. I, I'll tell you what. Flip one. Flip over on the other side. There's another tune. And for those of you wondering what this wild record is, I brought this back from Africa. Ah, mysterious Africa. Hey, why is it that people constantly, because I've been someplace, write and send me lists of books I should read now? <laughs> I don't know what it is about people. They probably read some crummy book on Africa, and they figured I should read it. Listen, friends, I'm going to write a book on Africa. Because the average guy, you know, goes over there and spends five minutes, and then he writes a book. So don't ask me to read somebody else's book about Africa, friends. No, sir. All right, uh, no talk. I just want that guy uh, playing those penny whistles. Now, for those of you who are interested in what uh, I'm playing here, these are penny whistles. And uh, they come from Africa. Great little crew. All right, now, this is a poem, please. This is very nice. This is frog music. The Arrogant Frog and the Superior Bull. Once upon a time, in a place conducive to malaria, there lived a member of the race of Rana Temporaria, or more concisely still, a frog, inhabited a certain bog. Very <laughs> beautifully done. A frog of Brobdingnagian size, too proud for condescension, one morning chanced to cast his eyes upon the frog I mentioned. Excuse me, it was a bull of giant size. We have to get that correct. A bull of giant size, too proud for condescension, one morning chanced to cast his eyes upon the frog I mentioned, and being to the manner born, surveyed him with lofty scorn. Perceiving this, the Bactrian's frame with anger was inflated, till, growing larger, he became egregiously elated, for inspiration's sudden spell had pointed out a way to swell. Ha-ha! He proudly cried, A fig for this, your mammoth torso! Just watch me while I grow as big as you, or even more so! To which magniloquential gush, his bullship simply answered, Tush! Alas, the frog's success was slight, 
which really was a wonder, in view of how with might and main he strove to grow rotunder, and standing patiently the while, the bull displayed a quiet smile. But ah, the frog tried once too oft, and doing so, he busted, whereat the bull discreetly coughed and moved away, disgusted, as well he might, considering the wretched taste that marked the whole thing. That's a good line, by the way. The wretched taste that marked the whole thing. The, oh, the moral. Uh, everybody knows how ill a wind it is that blows. Let that be your lesson for today. Blow no ill wind in my direction. Uh, by the way, here's why I'm hung on this frog. I, a great thing came out. You know, I, I, I don't read the New York, uh, the Wall Street Journal. I don't, you know, once in a while I see it when I happen to run across it in the daily... My daily rides on the subway all over town, you know. But I know, I, I, I'm, and this is not to put the Wall Street Journal down, not at all. But you, have you ever seen those uh, ads for the Wall Street Journal? It shows this uh, smug-looking cat sitting there, and he's reading the Wall Street Journal. And it says, why, anyone seeing this guy read the Wall Street Journal automatically knows that he's a guy on the way up, and he's a certain kind of dynamic, hard-hitting type. You seen those ads? Well... Boy, if I'm going to be judged by the stuff I read, I mean, <laughs> I'm serious, <laughs> Thorne Smith. <laughs> I remember one time trying to make a book report out about Thorne Smith. <laughs> but that, nevertheless, there is a front page story about frogs. Do you know that the frogs are right now part of a new crisis that's going on in the educational world? This is a special article by Neil Ullman, staff reporter of the Wall Street Journal. And uh, all of you people, you know, you think that everything's going great in colleges, you know, as long as they can keep those students in jail and all that, everything's going to work out. But uh, there's other crises. Listen, students and gourmets face a crisis of sorts, a shortage of frogs, supply falls as demand rises, a noisy spring in Oshkosh, and a vigil in Doyline, Louisiana. Now, before we go any further with this, you know, a lot of you people just probably take frogs for granted. You know, you know, just a frog. You like you probably take uh, oh, uh, turtles for granted. You know, you don't think much about turtles. I don't suppose many of you walk around thinking about largemouth bass, unless you're a fisherman, or uh, maybe toads. But the frog is an important creature. Really. Guess what is in short supply because of the educational explosion? Frogs. I'm quoting, that's right, the demand for frogs for students to pick apart in biology and zoology labs is rising at an annual rate of 10%. At the same time, the supply is dwindling. The result, a shortage that is causing prices to ride that is uh, diverting frogs from restaurants to labs. Have you noticed now that you hardly ever see frog legs in restaurants? That's right. They can't get them. And where are they? They're being, they're being cut up. In, in, I'm serious. The problem would seem easy to solve. The world is full of frogs, right? And it might appear that to an enterprising fellow, all he would need be would be to capture a few frogs, you know, a couple of frogs, and then go into the frog business, right? Well, it seems like with such a sure thing that the state of Georgia is trying to encourage its citizens to become frog watchers. In fact, the state has offered a set of a matched set of frogs from the lily pond at the governor's mansion in Atlanta to any Georgian who wants to become a frog farmer. And we are going to quote here. He says, and I quote, With Georgia's abundant water supply 
And with a little effort, we could become first here in the state of Georgia. We could become first in bullfrogs. Amen. Well, that's kind of nice. Georgia's number one in bullfrogs. But there is a hitch. It is difficult. Some discouraged persons today say impossible to raise frogs domestically. Did you know that it's a, it's a fantastic job to raise frogs domestically? Well, why I'm reading this is that I've had some, some experience with frogs. Now, a lot of you people are city types. And, uh, you know, a frog is something you see once in a while in a pond, and that's about all. But I remember one afternoon, and I'm playing the outfield now, okay? And I'm a minor league ball player, right? Okay? And I'm standing out in the outfield, way out. I'm playing out in left center, right? And uh, the fence behind me is about, oh, maybe 15 feet, maybe 30 feet behind me. The guy was a long ball hitter, and I'm playing up the alley for him, see? And uh, I'm walking around out there, and it's one of those long, hot afternoons in the Midwest. It is a doubleheader, right? And it's the second ball game of the doubleheader. We have dropped the first four to one. And the second ball game is now well into the seventh inning. We are leading two to nothing. The first ball game we led in over a month. And <laughs> the month has only got two more days to go. You know, it's been a bad year. And I'm standing out there in the outfield, and I'm telling you a true story. And, you know, outfielders, when they walk around out there, they, they're constantly looking for things to do, really. Uh, you just, you just sort of automatically, some ball players will take a, a spike, for example, and they'll just stand there, and they'll just kick the dirt all the time, trying to get, trying to get a good foot, good foothold, see, so if they have to go to their right, uh, they can move. You've seen, you've seen outfielders kicking out there. Other outfielders will just walk around and look at the birds and the chicks in the stand. And uh, then there's the outfielder who's the grass eater. He'll walk around out there and he'll just constantly be reaching down, picking things up. Have you noticed him all the time? He seems to be picking. But what he's usually doing is picking up a certain kind of grass or daisy or possibly clover that grows in the outfield a lot that he likes to eat while he's out there. Yeah, I, I, was a, I was a clover eater. I ate more clover, believe me, than the average uh, cow eats in a year. And I walk around out there, and I pick these little clover blossoms. I don't know what, it stunted my growth, among other things. But I would walk around out there, and I'd eat these clovers. You know, chewing a clover. And uh, once in a while, I'd, I'd, uh, find a, I'd find a, a, oh, a dandelion, for example. And it's great to take a dandelion and chew a little bit on the leaves. It's very bitter. Yeah, it's very bitter, see. And then it, it, uh, it, yeah, it takes away your thirst, though, strangely enough. So I'm walking around up there, and all of a sudden, it just happened like, like without any warning. It was just like uh, between innings. It just happened while I was looking. The whole ground was alive. I mean, I mean, it was fantastic, alive. And, and I looked around. I could see little things moving. I, at first, I thought they were bugs. I thought they were little, uh, some kind of a little grasshoppers. something. They look like grasshoppers. And I looked down, and I see that the entire outfield, strangely, magically, mysteriously, has become alive with little tiny green frogs. I mean so little, they're about the size of an aspirin. Have you ever seen that kind of frog? Yeah, they're really groovy. And, and thousands and thousands, as far as I could see, they're hopping around, you know. And I'd walk, and they'd, they'd hop up, up all around on my feet and everything else, millions. They must have come out of the ground all of a sudden. I don't know what happened there, because they weren't there the inning before. And so, just about the time I discover this, the guy that's up at bat catches a hold of a low outside pitch, and he whacks a shot right over short. Well, actually, it was on the second base side of short. I remember I can still see it coming at me. 
on the second base side of short, and it was a clean single, you see, in the, right up the left center field alley. Clean shot. Pow! And this ball goes right over short and lands about, oh, maybe 40 or 50 feet back of the shortstop, and it was a grass cutter, you know, the kind that has got a back spin on it. It cuts through the grass, and I saw millions of little frogs flying. I mean, yeah, well, he wasn't killing them. It's all right, honey. The frogs are okay. There's more where they came from. And this, this thing went, and I saw these little frogs flying up in the air. So I run over, and the ball stops in the grass, and I go running over, and the center fielder, he's running over there, too. And, and as he's running, I hear him say, what the hell is the frogs? Look at him. He's all like, what the hell are the frogs? And I rush there, and I pick the ball up, and here's a frog sitting on it. And I flip the frog off, and I whip the ball back into second base, and I'm standing out there, and there's frogs. I mean it. Frogs, and, and I, I, I take my glove, and I scoop down, and I pick up about 20 frogs. Well, I couldn't believe it. Well, I'm walking around the whole, that whole inning out there with frogs, nothing but frogs. So I come back to the dugout. Now, the inning's over, see? I come back to the dugout, and I, immediately I said to everybody, I said, have you seen the, the whole outfield is full of frogs? I've been of frogs. And one of the guys said, oh, you're good, what are you talking about? And the center fielder says, yeah, yeah, the frogs out there. And uh, we're sitting there. You wonder what ball players talk about. Everybody thinks the ball games. <laughs> we're sitting there talking about the frogs. Say, yeah, the frogs out there. And all the while, the game is going on. You know, there were over 75 people out. There was a big doubleheader, so uh, and a, lot, a lot of yelling and hollering. And so nobody believed it. You know, everybody says, oh, come on, you two guys are putting this on. The whole outfield is full of frogs. And the, the center field, I remember his name was Clem. He says, yeah, there are frogs out there. You're not kidding. There's frogs. And so now we go back out again. It's the beginning of the eighth inning. See, we go trotting out, not a frog. They disappeared like magic. So, you know, I, I, ever since that time, I've been intrigued by frogs. And you know that, uh, I don't know whether you remember the story of uh, Wisconsin a couple of years ago. Do you remember what happened in Wisconsin? You remember that, that, uh, that tidal wave of frogs they had? Good morning. How are you? That, that tidal wave of frogs, millions of frogs came out of every place. They came out of the air conditioning units and, you know, out of the in and out baskets and uh, every place. Yeah, millions of frogs all of a sudden inundated Oshkosh, Wisconsin. I mean it. They had to call the state cops and everything. And people were, uh, well, they were flipping their bird. I'm not, there she goes. She doesn't believe it. Uh, people, people got so scared they were in their houses. Now, listen to me because I was living in the Midwest at the time. People got so scared, Connie that they were looking out of their houses and they saw nothing but a sea of advancing frogs as far as the eye could... Now, one frog you can take. Maybe two or three. But when there are frogs, as far as the eye can see, you call the cops. And, of course, the cops at that point... <laughs> I mean, they're scared than anybody. You know, after all, they're people, too. See, so the frogs, millions of... And they, they came out of the river there. There's a river in Oshkai, see... And uh, it was a fantastic banner year for frogs, and the frogs were on the march. And for days, the uh, the city was completely covered. They had to close roads because millions of frogs going over roads. I mean, I mean, after all, you're driving along in your Pontiac, you know, and you've run over 7,000 frogs. You're going to have a hell of a mess. I mean, that <laughs> sounds sickening, right? Well, it was, and and uh, this is what happened out there—the great frog inundation—and they still talk about it out there. You know, like some cities talk about the great flood. You know, all, all, every city has a great thing that happened once—the big fire. Like Boston has the time that the molasses. Uh, you remember that the famous story? You you hear about that one? 
Well, around 1890 or something, uh, they had this gigantic tank in the middle of Boston. Don't ask me why they had it. I don't know. It was a gigantic tank up on the fifth floor of a building full of molasses. Well, what happened? One day, they're walking around, and all of a sudden, pow, the tank blew up. And 18 trillion billion gallons of molasses poured out all over Boston. Guys are floating down the street. <laughs> I'm serious. Guys drowning in the molasses and everything. <laughs> that can only happen in Boston, a ridiculous city anyway, you know. And these guys were... Yeah, and, and, and one guy, one poor sad guy got caught in a flood, in the Boston molasses flood. And nobody heard him hollering. And you know that he tread... Well, you can't say he tread water. He tread molasses for three days until they discovered this guy. He's swimming. <laughs> I'm not inventing it. It's true. I'm sorry. I'm not inventing this. And uh, for, for any of you, uh, is there anybody out there can give me any information on the great... Th no, don't call. I mean, write it. To send it to me. Don't Please don't call. I want to talk to Shepard. I'll go out. No. You send it... Uh, send me a note. And, and I will... I will do a thing on the Great Molasses Flood, which actually occurred in Boston. And today, old crotchety old-timers in Boston, they anti-date things, or they date things by before the Molasses Flood or after the Molasses debacle. Yeah, and it was fantastic. Now, Cincinnati, of course, they talk about the flood. And whenever you go to Cincinnati, the first thing they point out in Cincinnati, they point to the buildings up there in the third floor. You see that line up there. Just that's where the big flood was. They haven't got much else to talk about out there. So, you know, the big flood is a big thing. Now, like, uh, there was another town, uh, of course, Johnstown, Pennsylvania. What would Johnstown, PA, be without the big flood? Nothing. A little dinky Pennsylvania town. But the word Johnstown flood, you know, there is a Johnstown. They got a rotary club and a whole bit. But uh, there is a Johnstown, and there was a Johnstown flood. San Francisco, what do you think? Why, that earthquake made San Francisco. Would they have ever made a movie about San Francisco with Clark Abel in it if there wasn't an earthquake? No, sir. You remember that movie? Went on for seven weeks. <laughs> the longest movie. And uh, it went on and on and on. That, that earthquake was really something. That was a doozy. Now, uh, on the other hand, I know a town. I know a town that's famous in northern Indiana. Now, you listen to me, Pappy. I know a town in northern Indiana that was famous because half of the town had been swallowed up by the sand dunes. And everybody was glad because the bad part of town got swallowed up. See? <laughs> I mean, you know. <laughs> That's right. The sand dunes came right in one day and began to sneak up on the town. And uh, they used to go out. You know, it was, used to be beautiful. that You'd go there to this town. You'd point to the, to the distant hills. You know, the sun coming down over the distant hills and all that stuff. And uh, one day the distant hills, people kept saying, they're getting bigger, you know. And, uh, you're out of your mind, Charlie. You know, they're drinking that home brew and all that. People, yeah, they look bigger to me. I don't know what it is. Maybe I'm getting littler. And, uh, you know, people always have a tendency to, you know, think they're flipping their bird, which they are mostly. And uh, one day, this guy sitting on his rocking chair, this sand dune reached right out and grabbed him by the foot. And that, that right, he's sitting there, you know, smoking his corn cob, and he noticed his foot is covered up with sand. I'm telling you the truth. And he ran into the house, and the dunes are coming. Oh, they're getting us. And by the time he got on the phone, his his sun parlor was gone, along with his Aunt Emily, who was sitting there next to the fern. So, you know, uh, <laughs> that's the kind of life they live in the Midwest. You know, nothing bigger than a than an aphid watcher out there in the mid. Oh, sure, these old ladies sit next to the ferns and watch the aphids walk up and down the ferns. 
So, uh, you know, life, uh, life is exciting if you know where to look for it. But nevertheless, that town became famous. People would come driving for miles around to come and look at this town, which was being swallowed up by the sand dunes. And they even put uh, big signs out, come and see the sand dunes. And they charge you $2 to get inside the city limits to go and walk, look at the sand. No, this is sand there, you know. And, and what was so weird about it, you would see the streets would go right into the sand dunes, disappear. Now, that was their claim to fame. Their claim to fame. In fact, uh, you even know athletes like that. Uh, I, there was, uh, there's more than one athlete who was famous only because he dropped the third strike in the World Series. And nine runs scored immediately thereafter. You know, <laughs> there's a lot of people like that. So, uh, uh, if those of you who doubt the frog thing, you know that in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, right now, they're having problems because the frog crop is small there this year. Right? And they're worried about it. No frog legs. And that you know what happens when you try to grow them? Listen, here's a, here's a, here's a story of a guy who, who, uh, who uh, had a book, see? Colonel Carney obtained a state license, and he read a book by a doctor entitled Frog Raising for Pleasure and Profit. Well, you can raise hamsters, too, you know. I never knew anybody who sold the hamster once he raised those little crummy things. But nevertheless, uh, you remember when everybody was talking about raising uh, chinchillas? Right. And the only thing I ever saw, I saw a bow tie made out of a chinchilla skin. That's it. It looked terrible. But uh, here's, <laughs> here's what happened with this guy. You want to hear what happened when he tried to raise the frogs? Quote, I put a thousand frogs in my pond in the spring, and by fall I have about a hundred. The colonel reports ruefully. He has tried all methods to halt his shrinkage, but to no avail. Quote, I built concrete tanks, lined them with tin, put some fine chicken wire over the top. Some days I go out and sit on a chair and watch just to see where the frogs go. I don't know what happens to them. They just disappear. In other words, you put a thousand frogs in a tank, and two weeks later you got twelve frogs. No matter what you do, you even sit out in a rocking chair and watch. <laughs> so, uh, tonight uh, we figure, you know, the frog needed a little slow there. I dig frogs. And I'll tell you honestly, I've got, I've got uh, an ulterior motive. The only pet that I ever had when I was a kid, and I had no dogs, I was not a dog type, I had no cats, no cats. I one time had a goldfish, but, uh, you know, you can't get warm with a goldfish. You, know, you can go look at it for a while. Uh, I had, uh, you know what I had one time? I had a Katie did. It's a great pet. I had, uh, I had a couple of bugs once. I had a, I had a polywog. But the only pet that I really dug was the frog that grew out of a polywog that I saned out of the swamp myself and kept in a ball jar and fed him with cracker crumbs. He did. This polywog ate the cracker crumbs, and by God, one day, little feet came out. Yeah, and his tail dropped off, and next thing you know, I had a little green frog who was absolutely ape over crackers. He was only eating the Bisco crackers. 